Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 4, verses 27 through 30 and 39 through 42. If you're using your pew Bible, it's found on page 74 of the New Testament. So let us receive the word with great eagerness this morning, knowing that this is truly the word of the Lord. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are our help. You've been our help in ages past, the, the help of your people. You are our hope for years to come. Father, I thank you that your church will never fail. Your church will never come to an end. Your people, uh, no matter how poorly they may be treated in the world, no matter how despised they might be, no matter how rejected disdained, persecuted, or how often they are martyred, they will rise in the victory of Christ on that final day. When you arise, Lord, in your holiness to terrify the nations and to exalt yourself above all. Father, you are our help from ages past. You are our hope for years to come. It is because we are on that rock of ages and hidden in that cleft carved out for us in Jesus Christ. It's only because of him that we look forward to that day when you will be revealed in all of your terrifying holiness and you will deliver your people and bring them into your eternal kingdom. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us as we live in this life now, as we walk day to day, as we seek to do your will, as we seek to follow our Lord Jesus Christ and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. Lord, we want to honor you, Lord Jesus. We want to fulfill our allegiance to you by living our lives for the glory of your name. So please give us grace to do that. Lord, help us count the loss of all things. Let us count all things as rubbish, as trash, as garbage, that which is worthy of being thrown aside. for the great worthiness of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. I pray that every heart in this room would come to know the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Father, bless this time in your word unto that end. May you be honored and glorified among us. Lord, we look to you for your help now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Well, I don't know if you know this, but Christianity has always been a religion of evangelism. I don't know if you know what evangelism is or what evangelism means. Most often we think of evangelism merely in terms of spreading a message, right? Declaring something as an adherent to that message and trying to make it known to other people. But actually evangelism has a very specific and unique meaning. Uh, It's derived from a word from which we get the same word gospel. Uh, Gospel, good news. So to evangelize is to gospelize. It is to declare the good news, and specifically it's to declare the good news about Jesus Christ. It's not just the good news about right behavior. It's not just the good news about moralism or plurality and acceptance. It is the good news that we as sinners, condemned as we are under the justice of God, have been given a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's people have always realized that in relation to the world, our main task is to be busy doing evangelism. I want to emphasize this as I hope it will become clearer as the morning goes on that evangelism is something that is done by us actively. It's not something that just happens on its own. But Christ's people have always realized that in relation to the world, our main task, our main charge is to be doing evangelism. Now we live in a culture today that is doing all that it can to make sure that we neglect that duty to our to Christ our King. Whether it's through uh, societal and cultural shaming or through oppression at work. No, you can't talk about God here. You can't talk about religion here in this store. You cannot bring up God in the public sphere. There's a separation of church and state, don't you know? Little do they know that they're using that phrase in in a way that has never been intended in all of human history. Separation of church and state is not about separation of God and state. It's about the state not establishing a, a, a state-sponsored religion. But never in history have we ever known any culture to adopt an ideology that would say that God needs to be separated from absolutely everything that we do in our society apart from the Tower of Babel. We're living in a culture that's doing all it can to make sure that we neglect this duty. and We're even at the point where doing evangelism altogether will probably be outlawed soon in this country. Uh, If you don't believe me, you can just look through the the, the records of bills and legislation that have been proposed and passed uh, attempting to categorize evangelizing the homosexual community and and, uh, speaking against gay marriage and decrying the insanity of transgenderism. All of these things are trying to be categorized in law as hate crimes. And the reason why they're trying to be categorized in law as hate crimes is to use the full force of the law to shut the mouths of those who would speak against such ideologies. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that homosexuality is not a natural part of humanity. There are parts that fit together and there are parts that do not. There are parts that when they come together actually yield the flourishing of human life. There are parts that when they try to come together do not. It doesn't take, you don't need a PhD, you you don't need to have your doctorate in biology to know what a woman is. 
Genetically, biologically, a woman is a woman, and that woman will never be anything other than what that woman is genetically. She can try to suppress the expression of those genes in her life by uh, hormone therapy and surgeries and all that, but the moment that that hormone therapy stops, guess what kicks in? Biology. And she becomes physically what she actually is, what she never ceased being, a woman. Same thing with men. We're living in a society where saying things like that are are steadily uh, coming to that point where they are being outlawed, right? Because we don't, you understand why? A society that thrives upon falsity and, and lies cannot abide the speaking of truth. Well, as Jesus has commanded us, and that's a different, that's a different sermon, but it's tied in. Christians recognize that Jesus' command in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, mandates that regardless of what any government structure says, any government official says to us, regardless of that, we must obey the command of our king. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means the authority that our governor exercises is actually Christ's authority delegated to him. That means that the authority that our federal government exercises is Christ's authority delegated to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord of glory. And he tells his people, therefore, in light of the fact that all authority belongs to me, you go. You go tell people about me. Go make disciples of all the nations. There's no qualification clause there that says, unless the borders are closed. No, you keep going. You keep trying. You keep pressing against the gates of Hades because those gates will not prevail. That's what his promise was in Matthew 16, right? On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Gates are not offensive measures. They are defensive measures, which means the church is on the attack. Jesus says, all authority belongs to me. Now you go and you make disciples of all nations. You baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and you teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's your commission. Faithful disciples of Christ have always recognized that we cannot neglect that commission, no matter what the government or the world or society says. Now that charge is at the heart of Christianity because, as we've been seeing in John chapter 4, this is at the heart of the Father's will for His Son. The Father's will for His Son is that His Son would gather in from among all the nations fruit for the glory of His name. Right? Those are His wages as the reaper. We saw that from Revelation 14, that even right now Jesus is reaping the nations for His glory. He is sending forth the gospel with power and He is gathering in souls to belong to His people. That's what Jesus is doing. That is his commission from the Father. It's the Father's will to have a redeemed people from among all nations and tribes and and, and languages. And that's what Jesus is doing right now at this moment. That's what the church is responsible to enter into. We're, We're responsible to join Christ in fulfilling that work. Now, as we saw last week in verses 31 through 38 of John chapter 4, though that was Jesus' purpose in sending his disciples into the Samaritan city, Sychar, What did his disciples fail to do? Anyone remember? 
They failed to do it. He said, I sent you in there to reap a harvest. And they didn't do anything but reap bread. And they brought bread back to Jesus. He had sent them into the harvest, the city of Sychar, to evangelize, that is to gospelize the Samaritans, but they had failed to do that. But what we're going to see in verses 39 through 42 this morning is that Jesus, despite their failure, still gathers in his harvest. And he uses the evangelistic efforts of this Samaritan woman to do that. That becomes very clear at verse 39, right? Where many of these Samaritans believed in him because of the testimony of this woman. Now today, in light of what I've, I've already laid out for you, that evangelism, making disciples among the nations, that is the main charge that Jesus has given to the church in relation to the world. And in light of what we see Jesus doing here in John 4, using the evangelistic efforts of this woman to gather in these souls from this Samaritan city, in light of what we've just laid out, what I want to do today is focus on five general principles for doing evangelism. Five general principles that we learn from how the Lord uses this Samaritan woman to evangelize these Samaritans. And I hope that these will help us as we seek to do evangelism ourselves and join with Jesus in gathering together fruit for life eternal. So there are five of them, five that I see in this passage. Number one, Jesus, first, first general principle, Jesus uses people to reach people. In other words, Jesus appoints means to accomplishing his ends. And those means are people. From the beginning of this chapter, we see that Jesus had a divine purpose for passing through Samaria on his way to Galilee, right? John chapter 4, verse 4, it says that he had to pass through Samaria. That divine constraint that was upon him. He, he could have gone another way. He could have gone uh, as he traveled from Jerusalem north to the lands of Galilee and passed Samaria's right in the middle. He could have gone outside of the lands of Samaria to go up to Galilee to the, to the uh, I guess from your perspective, this would be to the west or even to the east. But he decided to go right through the heart of the land of Samaria. Because he had to. It was a divine constraint, a necessity laid upon him. Verse 34 makes clear why, right? We've seen this before. He had to go through Samaria because that was his father's will. It was his father's will that he would come and accomplish the will of the one who sent him, which is defined in verse 36 as gathering in fruit from among the nations for eternal life, redeeming and saving sinners. No, but I want to notice, I want you to notice something about how Jesus goes about accomplishing this will. His will is to save sinners. How does he go about doing that? Even though that was Jesus' mission, was to gather in these Samaritans for eternal life, Jesus himself does not enter into the city and start preaching the gospel. Instead, he sends his followers into that city and commands them to go reap a harvest. Now, he starts, first of all, in John 4.38, by sending his disciples. He says, I sent you into that city, and you didn't do what I told you to do, or what I intended you to do. But then we see in John 4.39 that after converting this woman, he even uses her to do the work he had charged his disciples to do. Now, I don't want to drag this out, but because we got five principles we've got to work through, and you guys know how I can get. Most of you do. 
I don't want to drag this out, but the principles that we see at work here is the fact that Jesus uses means to accomplish his ends. And specifically, when it comes to accomplishing his father's work of gathering sinners for eternal life, he uses people to do it. Just as an illustration, let's take that picture of Jesus sitting on the cloud with a sickle from Revelation chapter 14. And let's analyze that in light of what we're charged to do here, what we see Jesus doing here in John 4. Jesus, right now at this moment, he is wielding his sickle throughout the world, gathering in souls from among the nations for life eternal. And if we take that imagery, we could imagine uh, the, the sharp edge of that sickle being the gospel itself, right? The message of Jesus Christ and him crucified for the sake of sinners, right? That's, that's the message that pierces through the sinner's heart, right? That's the message that comes upon the heart of stone and shatters it like a hammer shatters rock, This is the message that that burns up the chaff like fire, right? The gospel would be that sharp edge of the sickle. But the handle between Jesus' hand and the sharp edge of that sickle would be seen as his disciples whom he charges to go forth and preach that gospel. The gospel is the sharp edge of the sickle. Jesus is the one wielding it. We are the handle. And it's our responsibility to swing the sharp edge of that sickle right where the Lord wants it swung. Romans 10 verses 12 through 14 makes this clear. Salvation comes to everyone who calls upon the name of Christ for salvation. So, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him for Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. We go forth preaching Christ as Lord over every man, woman, and child, and we call upon them to call upon Him. Because all who call upon Him will be saved. But verse 14 tells us that that is not going to happen apart from people actually going forth and preaching that message to the nations. Right? How then will they, if, if, if calling upon Jesus is what leads to salvation, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? You can't believe in someone you never heard about. And you can't hear about someone without someone else telling you about that person. Sharing of the gospel is necessary. Sinners will not be saved, in other words, through the message of the gospel, if there is no one preaching and declaring that message to them. Romans 10, 17 confirms that. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing from the word of Christ. It's through the gospel that God sparks faith in the heart of sinners and brings them to salvation in Christ. Now practically, applying this, to you, what that means is that the people in your life are not going to be brought to saving faith in Christ unless someone brings the message about Christ to them. That ought to change the way that we think about those whom the Lord has brought into our lives who are not yet believers in Christ. There, there are no accidents. There, there are no happenstances. Everything is providentially ordered by a good and sovereign God. So how do we think about lost people whom the Lord has brought into our lives? Ought we not think about them the same way the disciples should have thought about these sinners in Sychar? Jesus sent us into the city to reap a harvest. Shouldn't we think about the lost people that the Lord brings into our lives in a a similar way? 
Jesus has brought them into our lives or he's put us into certain circumstances so that we, too, would reap a harvest. You know, you don't know who God's elect people are among the many unbelievers that you will interact with throughout your life. You don't know whom those are. Whom, you don't know who they are whom God has chosen to save. But what we do know is that no one will be saved unless someone tells that person about the good news of God's love and the good news of salvation from sin and death and hell that has been purchased for us through the death and resurrection of Christ. If we're true followers of Christ and he has brought someone into, who is lost into our lives, we should see that as Christ called for us to enter into his harvest at that point, to share the gospel with them. Jesus uses means to accomplish his ends. He uses people to reach people. So if we want to be used by Christ to gather in his harvest, then we have to be willing to share the truth about Christ with others the same way this woman did. So that's point one. Jesus uses people to reach people. That means Jesus uses you to reach others. All right? Number two. We learn that Jesus will gather in his harvest no matter who he has to use. This is really important to notice this. Just because the disciples failed to reap this Samaritan city with the gospel does not mean that Jesus missed out on his harvest. It does not mean that Jesus would have missed out on his harvest. The, the failure of the disciples was not going to hinder the work of Christ, in other words. Jesus came into this world in order to gather together his fruit. That is what he was commissioned by his Father to do. He came into the world to seek and to save and to rescue and redeem the lost sheep whom the Father had entrusted him to save. And Jesus will make sure that every single one of those sheep is gathered into his fold. Even if you, in your disobedience to Christ, fail to share the gospel with that sheep. He'll find someone else to do it. Verse 39, where the disciples had missed their opportunity, Jesus uses someone else to bring in his harvest. He uses this woman. It's a valuable lesson for us. If we're not willing to step out in faith and share with others our own joy in coming to know Jesus as the Messiah, then Jesus will pass over us and he will use someone else to do it, but it will be our loss and not his. You know, we can only guess how many opportunities we have missed out on because we have failed to enter into Christ's harvest. Or you remember from, from Acts chapter 11, verse 20 and 21, it's, it's uh, uh, telling for us how the church in Antioch was established. Do you remember how that was established? The, the church in Antioch, it, it became one of the most influential churches in the, in, the, in the period of early church history. It became the sending church of the Apostle Paul, and by extension of his ministry, it became the church that reached the entirety of the Roman Empire with the gospel. And how was it established? It was established because some believers who were scattered from the persecution in Jerusalem decided that they were going to open their mouths and they were going to start telling people about Jesus. And look at what verse 21 says. It says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. It wasn't their persuasiveness that converted these people. It was the fact that they were willing to go out in faith and share with people about Jesus. Jesus. 
And the hand of the Lord brought in a great harvest and established a great Antiochian church to spread the gospel through the entire Roman Empire. How many, how many Antioch moments have you and I missed out on because we didn't open our mouths and share the truth about Jesus with someone? Only the Lord knows. Now, relating to that, point number three. So point number two, Jesus will gather in his harvest no matter who he has to use. And just let me, let me pause for a second. Think about who he used here. This is an immoral woman. And let's think about what we learned last week. It, he used a woman to do it in a culture where women were despised. And to even speak with a woman was to compound the danger that you were in of going to hell. You remember that quote I read to you from a rabbi? Jesus decides that he's going to use this woman to reach his harvest where his disciples had failed. That leads to point three. That Jesus, what we see here in John 4 is that Jesus intends to use all of his disciples to gather in his harvest no matter who we are. So Jesus will gather in his harvest no matter who he has to use. Jesus intends to use all of his disciples to gather in his harvest no matter who we are. Does that make sense? You with me? Verse 38, Jesus had sent his disciples into the city with the purpose of using them to reach the Samaritans, and they had failed. We've established that, probably beaten a dead horse by now. But as we see in verse 39, he chose to use this woman to bring souls into his kingdom. Now, a general principle we can draw from this is that no matter who we are, Jesus can and will use us to accomplish his will in this world. In fact, I would say that Jesus has shown his willingness to use each one of us to reach the lost of the world by commanding all of us to join with him in gathering in his harvest. I don't know if you know this, but every single believer in this room is commanded to do evangelism. It's not an option. It's not a take it or leave it thing. It's not Jesus coming to you and saying, you know, if you want to share with other people about me, I would really appreciate that. No, Jesus comes to you and says, I command you as your king, as Lord of all, the one in whom all authority in heaven and on earth is vested, I command you to share the good news about me with others. 1 Peter 2.9 is where we're going to go, but you know, we very often fall into this trap. Well, I'm not an evangelist. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Let me ask you a question. Would Jesus command his people to do something that he was not able to equip them to do? See, you saying, I don't have the gift of evangelism, I'm not gifted or qualified to do evangelism, is really a statement being made about Jesus, not so much a statement being made about you. You're saying Jesus has called you to do something that he has not equipped you to do. Let God be true, though every man be found a liar, right? The clearest text that probably, probably the clearest text that explains that every believer is called to do evangelism is 1 Peter 2.9. Where Peter describes the church, the new covenant people of God, with this kind of language drawn from the old covenant. So the, old, the way that God described the old covenant people of God is now being attached to the new covenant people of God, the people of Christ. He says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. 
It's a wonderful description of what, what the church actually is to God. But notice the purpose for which we are these things. We, we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people for God's own possession so that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now look at that. No matter who you are, if you are a member of the chosen people of God, if you are a member of his holy nation, if you belong to him as part of his own holy possessed people, his, his own possession, if that's you, then you also have been brought into that family of God for a purpose. It's that you would proclaim his excellencies. It doesn't matter who you are. If you are a believer in this room, you are charged to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ to others. If, if Jesus, by his almighty power, has summoned you out of your darkness of sin and depravity, if he, has, if he has brought you out of your hatred of God and out of your love affair of sin, and he has brought you in to see the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the, and the, the resplendent glory of Jesus Christ in his wondrous light, then you are charged to declare the glories of that light to other people. I had someone, I used to do evangelism out on the street in Minneapolis. I had someone, a radio guy, announcer or something. He was out there interviewing people. And he came up to me and he asked me a question. He says, what would you do to encourage people to come out here and do what you're doing? So what, what method, what tactic, what would, you, what would you say to them to get them to do what you're doing in evangelizing people? And I said, I would tell them to stay home and go into their prayer closets until they know God so well that they can't help but share him with others. I think a lot of times, we are not evangelists the way Christ commands us to be evangelists. People of God, listen. A lot of times, we are not evangelists the way Christ commands us to be evangelists because we do not know our God the way we should. And we say, God hasn't given me a gift of evangelism. Really, that's just an excuse for our own negligence in pursuing the Lord. Because it's those who know their God who will be strong and take action, right? When we don't take action, according to God's will, we have to say that it must be because we don't know our God the way we should. Now, this, this doesn't mean that we are all called to be street preachers or we're called to be full-time evangelists, but it does mean that each one of us is called to live our lives evangelistically. So Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, it commands us to conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity, letting our speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Now, this tells us that the calling to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, number one, belongs to every believer. But also, number two, that calling impacts every circumstance and situation we find ourselves in. Because in every interaction with every person, we are commanded to conduct ourselves toward them with wisdom so that we will know how to speak words of grace to them. We're all called to do this work of evangelism. If you don't mind, can I camp on this just for one more minute? Maybe a couple. Can I borrow a couple of your minutes? Yeah. yeah. I know that this can sound intimidating to very many of us. 
And for some of you, it can even be terrifying to think about living in this kind of open and evangelistic way, right? But I need you to please understand, you don't have to be some trained Bible scholar or some world-renowned apologist in order to be a faithful and effective witness for Christ. You don't have to have some method perfectly ironed out that you can execute in trying to evangelize the lost. You don't need four spiritual laws in order to witness to people for Christ. You don't need the Roman road. You don't need evangelism explosion. You don't need the way of the master in order to evangelize for Christ effectively. As helpful as those can be as guides for evangelizing the lost, you don't need any of those methods in order to be faithful witness for Christ. Practically speaking, what you do need are really only a few things. Number one, you need to know the truth about Christ so that you have something to share. Number two, you need to know Christ in truth so that you're not being a hypocrite. You need to know the truth about Christ. And then secondly, you need to know Christ in truth. And then thirdly, you need to actually be willing to open your mouth and share the truth. We're told in the scriptures that's going to invite persecution. Can't shirk away from it. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, Jesus said. Because he knew it would happen. Beloved, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your limitations might be. Christ can and Christ will use even you to reach the lost. If you exercise enough faith in him to put yourself out there and do it. I mean, take this woman as your example. What we see her sharing with the people in Sychar... We can, we can understand that in what she shared with them, there wasn't a lot of deep explanation or sophistication behind what she said. She didn't come to them saying, hey, y'all, I found the Messiah, and, and by the way, here are three logical arguments for why Jesus is the Messiah, and here's 100 proofs that I have to show you as evidence that he truly is the Messiah. She didn't come to them doing that. She just came to them saying, hey, y'all, I found the Messiah. Would you come? Come out and see him with me. That's all she did. I love how J.C. Ryle summarized this when he was talking about this element of this woman's testimony and how Christ used it. Just listen to these words. J.C. Ryle said, this passage shows the importance of human testimony to Christ's gospel. The word of one weak woman was made the instrumental means of belief to many souls. Isn't that amazing? There was nothing remarkable in this woman's words. It contained no elaborate reasoning, no striking eloquence. It was only a hearty, earnest testimony of a believing heart. We must never despise the use of means because of their apparent weakness, feebleness, or inaptness to do good. God can make the weakest instruments powerful to pull down the strongholds of sin and Satan just as he made David's sling and stone prevail over Goliath. You are that David and the people and the world and the circumstances around you in a very real way are that Goliath. 
the weakest, the weakest attempt to bring down that giant, God can bless it. He can bring glory for His name out of the weakest attempt to share Christ with somebody. I've heard testimonies of people being inflamed and awakened to a saving faith in Jesus by someone running by them and saying, Jesus is so good. And it's enough in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring them to salvation. You don't have to go out there and explain to them some big systematic theological treatment of the message of the Scriptures. You just have to go out with the true believing heart that Jesus is Lord and, and proclaim that truth. We are facing strongholds of evil today. That, that Let's be real, that our parents and our grandparents did not have to face. See, the blessing of this Christian culture that America was birthed out of is, is, is waning. It's fading away. And now we're beginning to see what, what natural man is as he rebels against God. And we're all shocked by it. We shouldn't be. This is what happens when we reap what we sow. You sow rebellion against God, you're going to reap the, the benefits of rebellion against God. We are facing strongholds of evil in our day that our parents and grandparents never had to face, our great-grandparents. And apart from revival or the second coming of Christ, our children will have to face even more entrenched strongholds of the enemy. But beloved, the gospel is God's chosen battering ram to break through those enemy strongholds. Do you believe that? Wasn't the gospel what God used to break through your stronghold? Wasn't it, wasn't it the message of a crucified Savior out of love for mankind, giving Himself for your salvation so that when you stand before the judgment seat of God, God doesn't see your sins anymore. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ and accepts you. Isn't that the hope that brought you into the faith? Why do you think it's going to be any different for anyone else? And now we've got to get more sophisticated in the way we present the gospel. It's not enough just to tell them the truth. You've got to have media presentation, and you got to have slides, and you got to have flashbang, whiz-pow type things. We don't need any of that. Because the power of the gospel is not in those things. It's in the God who wields the gospel. The power of the gospel is in the Holy Spirit applying it to the heart of a sinner. And so long as we fail to believe that and act upon it, God is not going to bless our labors. He's not going to bless our labors when we can get glory for something that we did rather than Him alone. Right? In all your weakness, beloved, I, this is the point I'm trying to get at. In, in all of your weaknesses and insecurities and all your fears, you are God's chosen instrument that he plans to use to destroy the fortresses of the enemy and bring freedom to captives. The call is simply to take up the battering ram and get to work, right? We are marching around the city of Jericho, and the only thing, the only offensive weapon that the Lord has given us is a trumpet and a battle cry of praise. That's it. So let's blow the trumpet of the gospel and let's praise God for Jesus Christ and watch what God will do. Uh, you don't believe, you're not with me. Maybe I'm not with me. That brings us to point number four. Part of sharing Christ with the world is sharing our personal testimony of what Christ has done in our own lives. Part of sharing Christ with the world 
is sharing our own personal testimony of what Christ has done in our lives. We see in verse 39 that part of this woman's testimony about Jesus was her own personal experience of him. Now let me be clear about something before I launch into this discussion. Doing evangelism necessarily requires declaring propositional truths about the gospel. In other words, you have to declare the facts about Jesus in order to be doing evangelism. You have to, you have to declare the facts about the gospel in order to be gospelizing, right? So, so you have to declare the reality of God's holiness and righteousness. You have to declare the reality of our sinfulness and, and the reality of the judgment that is to come. You have to declare the facts of God's prophetic promises that a Savior would come to this world. You have to declare the facts about Jesus' virgin birth, His perfect life, His miracles, His sacrificial atoning death on the cross. You have to declare His historical, actual, literal, bodily resurrection from the dead. You have to declare His ascension to the throne on high and His return one day in glory. If you are are not declaring those things as you declare the gospel, you are not declaring the gospel. The gospel is not merely Jesus loves you. That's part of it. But the gospel is much more than that. These are historical, literal facts of the good news about Jesus Christ, and they must be heralded, and they must be proclaimed with authority, or else we are not doing evangelism. I mean, and we see the woman doing that, even right here in John 4.29. She went to the city proclaiming, is this not the Christ? That's a theological statement. That's a propositional truth statement. She's, she's talking about this Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament, and she's bringing all the concepts and notions that belong to that Messiah, and she's dumping them on Jesus, and she's saying, hey, come see this guy. I think he's the Messiah. She's speaking truth. But notice in verse 39, she doesn't just present facts about Jesus. She bore witness to what Jesus had personally done in her life. She comes to these people and she says, not come see this guy, I think he's the Messiah. She comes to these people and says, hey, I think I found the Messiah. Listen to what he did in my life. He told me all things I've done. He laid me open. He, he, he brought out the secret things of my heart. He confronted me with the righteousness of God and he made me see that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Her testimony to the truth, in other words, was not separated from her own personal experience of the truth. Now, I think this is very, a very important lesson for us to learn about doing evangelism, especially as those who are more reformed in our theology. This may, seem, this may be a little controversial for some in this room. I'm okay with that. As long as if what I'm saying is biblical, we'll let it stand there. So if you're offended by what I'm about to say, then please come talk to me about it later, and we'll, talk, we'll, we'll wrestle through that. Doing evangelism is not merely about reciting the facts concerning Jesus. It definitely is that, and that is a vitally important part of what it means to do evangelism, but that's not all that evangelism is. 
Evangelism, true evangelism happens when we proclaim the facts about Jesus Christ from a heart that truly believes and has experienced those facts about Jesus Christ. Agree? Lost? (laughs) Say that again, Pastor, I I didn't get that. True evangelism happens when we proclaim the facts about Jesus Christ from a heart that truly believes and has experienced the glory of those facts about Jesus Christ. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.13, as he went about preaching Christ to others, he said, I believed, therefore I spoke. Faith preceded proclamation. I believe this message. I truly am gripped by this message. I recognize the validity and the the truthfulness and inherent quality of this message. Therefore, I preached it. It's not this John Wesley nonsense, right? John Wesley was told when he thought he was unconverted, well, you just fake it till you make it, John Wesley. Keep preaching until you're converted. Mm -mm. Nope. Be converted. And then you will preach with power. This is what John Owen was getting at in his uh, volume nine of his works when he was encouraging and instructing pastors in their preaching. He was talking about the things that are vital for effective preaching. And he says, another thing required for effective preaching is experience of the power of the things we preach to others. Have you ever been under a preacher who's flat And just not excited, not animated at all by what he's saying? Have you ever come away from hearing someone preach like that feeling, man, that guy really believed what he was saying? Or did it put you to sleep? John Owen said, another thing required for effective preaching is experience of the power of the things we preach to others. He went on to write, I think truly that no man preaches that sermon well to others that doth not first preach it to his own heart. For unless, listen to this, for unless he finds the power of the truth in his own heart, he cannot have any ground of of confidence that it will have power in the hearts of others. You can't preach with conviction the gospel to other people when you yourself are not convinced. You you cannot preach the saving, delivering, redeeming power of the Lord Jesus Christ to other people when you have not experienced the saving, redeeming, delivering power of Jesus Christ in your own life. You're still stuck in your sin. You still are struggling with with a kind of doubt that is ungodly and leads you to run into the ways of the world. My friend, you don't need to be talking to other people about Jesus yet. You need to be talking to your own soul about Jesus because you're not yet set free. Jesus said His disciples will know the truth and the truth will set them free. If you are not free from your sin, then you have not come to know the Savior yet. Even though John Owen wrote those things to preachers, the principle is true for all of us as we seek to proclaim the glories of Christ to the lost and hell-bound world around us. You need to know Jesus truly for yourself before you go start to proclaim him to other people. Think about this in light of 1 Peter 3.15 and what it says. We are coming to the end, so be patient. 1 Peter 3.15, Peter writes... To every believer, 
we are charged to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us, yet to do so with gentleness and reverence. Now notice two things here. Number one, we are all called to know how to give a defense for the hope of the gospel. That word for defense, that word is apologia. That is talking about a reasoned defense. That we can actually walk someone through the truths about Christ and explain to them why we are hoping in him. Right? That, that's reasonableness. That, that's an intellectual endeavor. We are actually engaging with the positions of the world and we are saying Christ is better and here's why. But, notice secondly, we are called to give that defense of our faith in Christ as it flows out of our own personal attachment and experiential knowledge of Christ. True evangelism does not merely flow from the mind that is able to regurgitate some facts about Jesus. True evangelism flows from a heart in which Christ is being sanctified as Lord. So we start with sanctifying Christ as Lord in our own hearts, and then we move out into making a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. You cannot preach to others a Christ that you yourself don't know. You cannot preach, you cannot call others to follow and obey and honor Jesus if in your own heart you're not doing those things for yourself. You can't tell someone else the good news about Jesus as Savior without having a heart that is affected by the goodness of that news yourself. Thessalonians, you see this really manifest in the life of the Thessalonian church. Where when the word of the Lord spread out from them, it wasn't merely the word itself that spread out as a witness to the power of the gospel. It was the testimony of their faith in God that went with that testimony of the Lord's word. There's this coupling between the truth and facts of the gospel and their own experience of the truths and facts of that gospel. That's what resounded all throughout Macedonia and Achaia with power. That's what gave um, um, a real heralding uh, trumpet blast to the power of the gospel was not just the message but the impact that that message had on the Thessalonians. That's why Paul says in verse 5 that, that, that when we came to you, we did not come to you in word only, but we came to you also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. As the, as the Thessalonians went out and preached the gospel of Christ, they went out preaching with that power, with that Holy Spirit, with that full conviction. And that became effective in spreading the gospel all throughout Macedonia and Achaia. So like this woman... Like Paul, like the Thessalonians, we must possess for ourselves a deep experience and personal acquaintance with Christ in order to evangelize effectively. We must truly know him whom we're calling other people to know. And, uh, now, there are, other, there are a couple of other things that I could have gone on about these general principles of evangelism. We could have talked about the, the power of the testimony of our own lives in doing evangelism. You know, I was saved under a pastor who said that the world can deny a lot of things about Jesus, but the one thing they cannot deny is the reality of a changed life. So the, when your life is changed by the gospel, you know it and everyone else around you knows it. Right? We shouldn't be afraid to let that shine out. We are a peculiar people and we were made peculiar by the power and glory of Jesus. Let's let it shine. We could have talked about boldness in evangelism. This woman was not couching her words when she went into the city and started telling people about Jesus. 
She wasn't doing friendship evangelism for three and a half years, trying to get in with all of them so that she can then have a platform from which to speak about Jesus. That's not what she did. She went into the city and she declared, Jesus is the Messiah, come see him. We could talk about that, but I want to close on one final point, one general observation that we see here. And this is brief. We learn in this passage that the ultimate goal of evangelism is to bring people to Christ. The goal of evangelism is not to get someone to repeat a prayer after us. Because guess what? If if, If their attempt to reach out to Jesus is no deeper than the prayer that I'm telling them to pray, then they're not actually going to Jesus. They're coming to me. I don't, want, I don't want to evangelize like that. I don't want people coming to me. We're not Roman Catholics. We don't believe that there's some altar Christus that intercedes for us between Jesus and us. No, we believe that Jesus is our high priest and we can go directly to him in the grace of the gospel. We don't go out evangelizing trying to get someone to pray a prayer after us. We, we, don't, we don't even just pass along the facts of the gospel or even our own experience of Christ in the gospel, and then just let it be enough. It's not a take it or leave it attitude that we bring with us whenever we are evangelizing the lost. Our goal and our aim in doing evangelism is to get other people to come to Jesus themselves. Verse 30, that's what happened when this woman went into the city and she started telling everybody, come, see this man who told me all things I had done. Is this not to Christ? How did the city respond? They started coming to Jesus. You look at verse 40. It's the same thing. After, they had, after she had shared her testimony with them, they came out to Jesus and they even invited him to come stay with them. Right, so, so they're, and then after Jesus came and they were interacting and mingling with Jesus for themselves, their faith only increased in response to the word that he was telling them. So, so they could say in verse 41 and 42 that even though we believed because of the word of the woman, now we're believing because of the word of Jesus himself. That's the effect of actually bringing someone to Christ. They begin finding out for themselves the glory of Jesus. They're not dependent on you to tell them about him. They know him for themselves. Now the world looks at people like me and says, man, that guy's nuts. He's lost. He's off his rocker. He doesn't know what he's talking about. No, 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 no. 19 years ago, I came to meet Jesus for myself. I was on the steady. I was in the boat with the rest of the world, and we were trying not to rock it as best as we could. But then Jesus came, and he kicked me out of the boat. He showed me that he's real. He showed me that he's genuine and true. He showed me that he is the Lord of glory and that he is worthy of my love and my allegiance and and he's worthy of me to follow him in faith. I found that out for myself. I didn't find that out because someone told me those things. This, what we see in these people of the Samaritans, that's what it looks like when people are being truly converted to Christ. You don't have to coerce them and manipulate them into coming to Jesus. You don't have to keep trying to dangle a carrot or a steak out in front. Where's Grant? Where are you, brother? Yeah, you don't have to dangle a steak out in front of the lost sinners to try and get them to follow after Jesus, right? When someone's truly being converted to Christ, they will outrun you in their pursuit of Christ. And that's exactly what we are trying to accomplish 
as we go out into the world and do evangelism. We're not, we're not going out and calling people into our own mission, our own lifestyle. We're not calling people to come to this church or that church or listen to this preacher or that preacher or merely to take our word for it. We are going out with a simple call. We are declaring to the world, this is who Jesus Christ is. This is what makes that good news. This is what He has done in my life. Now come see Him for yourself. That's proclaiming the gospel. May the Lord give us grace to do that with power and with fervency and a true zeal and desire to honor Him above all else in this world. Father, we do pray for that. Jesus Christ is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. And I pray that as we close with these couple songs and then as we close with the glorious uh, expressions of faith in you in these baptisms, Lord, help us truly worship you. And we pray that in, in drawing near to you, you would draw near to us. And that as you draw near to us, that you would strengthen us to bring the truth and knowledge of you out to others in this world and around us. Lord, we want to be faithful witnesses for your glory. Help us learn from your word how to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.